I am very excited about today's episode because it is our first time having someone who has yet to be on a podcast before. A business colleague of mine I've been on a panel with at an event for HR business leaders in Hollywood called Hacking HR, Ewing Gillespie. Ewing is a worldwide research leader with IBM specializing in Watson Artificial Intelligence for Talent. He regularly works with IT and HR leaders to share the art of what's possible and, most importantly, staying on top of where AI needs to be implemented. He works with IBM and other organizations HR function by implementing agile methodologies and 10 plus technologies. A little on Ewing's background, Ewing attended Ole Miss where he finished in the top 7% of the business school graduating with a degree in management information systems and was a fraternity president. From there he pursued an MBA with an emphasis in HR management and services at Purdue. Ewing then began his professional career working more than a handful of years for Cummins. At Cummins he went from intern to director in various roles ranging from software procurement to corporate recruiting, working in various locations from Indiana to Beijing. He also received a Six Sigma black belt while working there. He then spent some time in sales at a couple of startups before starting at IBM. Ewing and I discuss how his upbringing impacted him, his time at Ole Miss, getting his MBA, receiving a Six Sigma black belt, what's more valuable, the MBA or black belt, how businesses should look at sales and changes they should make, the power of AI and what can be done with it, what AI will do to our job market, and more. For more information on Ewing, find him on LinkedIn. If this podcast impacts or speaks to you, please share it and leave a review. And as always, follow More You Know Pod and Riley RM4 Tech on social media. I'm just trying to make it all make sense. Me. More. You. No. Podcast. So Ewing, I saw this awesome picture of you when you were younger with this MacGyver mullet. And I was wondering what your upbringing was like growing up. Yeah, okay. Well, I uh, was born in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grew up in a little rural town called Glenpool, uh, named after a guy named Glenn that found the largest pool of oil in the United States. Uh, so he cleverly came up with Glenpool to name the city. Okay. Uh, we were, I don't know, I think it might have been 10, 11,000 people. Um, so one school uh you know just very simple um and uh you know my life really changed when I, I went to a different school in fourth fifth sixth seventh and eighth grades and that that made me the perpetual new guy um and every time you just get a few friends by that second semester start all over again at zero at zero at zero at zero so i started over at zero friends because location, I mean, it's, you, you can't keep up in 1988, you can't keep up with your friends from <laughs> 400 miles away. Sure. Just uh, so, so that was pretty impactful. Um, you know, I, you know, one sort of memory I carry forward uh, for motivation, right? Some people are looking for intrinsic motivation. Um, you know, the, you have the book fair, um, uh, at school, we had the you know the book fair they called it. I think everyone called it the same thing. And I remember being the only second grader that couldn't buy a book. And I just remember that feeling coming back to class, and everyone had a new book on their desk, and I didn't have a dollar ninety five to buy a, a book. And and so um, I picked um, the Guinness Book of World Records was the book that I wanted. And so the next third grade, I I, I got it, and I still have the copy. Uh, I think it's nineteen eighty nine or. Um, yeah, I think it was 1989. And, and so I, I told myself I was going to have something in that book one day. 
you know, yeah. and I, still, I haven't done it yet, but you know, that, that's, uh, that's always lingering in the back of my mind. So, you know, everything from studying hard to working hard, it kind of comes back to that moment. Like, wow, uh, this is not that great, you know? And, um, you know, for a seven year old or an eight year old is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty impactful. It is. And it's fascinating how you can get inspiration from times like that. So young where they impact you in some sort of a negative way where you feel anxious or self-conscious about yourself and it really sparks you down a path that's totally different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So then I saw you went to Ole Miss. So what was the college experience like for you and what type of takeaways did you get from it? Ole Miss was an escape from baseball. Um, okay. First went to uh, two different junior colleges. Uh, I was a pitcher. Uh, I grew up playing shortstop, and and for some reason, pitching was what got me as you know got me into the collegiate ranks. I w- would have rather played shortstop for sure. And uh, I found out that I was finally you know sick of baseball, and uh, so I followed my best friends from high school to Ole Miss. Uh, that was like it just was so incredibly social. Um, I know, I know many colleges are, but I feel like there's something, there's something magical about Ole Miss and uh, just the, all the different variety of social activities. Um, you know, it's, it's very Greek heavy, you know, it's very fraternity and sorority driven. I think it's um, when I was there, it was the second most uh, Greek school per capita and only Miami of Ohio um, at 34% had more Greek students than, than we did. So okay. you know, that just brings organization really. There's a lot of negative connotations to that as well. Um, you know, but as a, you know, as a, as a first year, um, pledge, if you will, I, I set a goal to be president and I achieved that goal and, you know, and, and drove some change, um, that last year. And, uh, yeah, Ole Miss was awesome. I, I there's, there's truly nothing like it that, you know, it, now it's not a secret anymore that the we have the best tailgate uh, in the nation and people come from all over the country to see it and and we live up to the expectations every time from I've never met anyone that went that didn't have that wow this is this is really something um, so I've heard the same thing I know people who so I'm raised in Northern California area people who come out to visit their college friends are going to Ole Miss just to see the tailgates and experience that so. Yeah. With the fraternity, you're talking about how that was a valuable thing because it's teaching you sort of organizational skills and some leadership skills, I'm sure. What were some skills and some experiences that you took away from that that impacted you down the road with with working? Yeah, well, uh, recruiting and sales, right? So that experience, you know, for, for a number of years in a row, it's recruiting and sales. You're recruiting new members. You're giving them a pitch. And they react to your pitch and you evolve your pitch. And, you know, innately you're calculating how you're doing, whether you're writing it down or not and refining it. And in those two skills are, you use it in every job, Uh, you know, especially if you're in HR, I would argue that there's more HR people that have sales skills than maybe supply chain and other functions because businesses don't wake up and go, I know, I think I'll invest a million dollars in HR today. Let's just, let's just pump some money in HR and see what happens. Instead, they wake up and say, let's pump some money into marketing and see if we can drive revenue. Yeah. And, and they know that direct correlation exists because it's a shorter loop between pumping the money into marketing and getting the revenue out. It's a shorter, easier to see loop. So, so what does that mean? That means that HR professionals 
have to sell even more. They have to craft their message and their strategy perhaps even better uh, it, because, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the kind of function that has downward cost pressure, not, um, not innately some, uh, you know, a function that you really want to invest in. So I, I ended up in HR and, and, and that was my experience is, um, you know, we're asked what can we cut, not where we need to, uh, need to put money always. So, so I think that if you think about your work, um, there's a lot of skill building that happens. And if you even ask some of those folks, they'll say, no, I don't, I'm not a salesperson. I don't have any sales skills. And yet they just convinced their organization to change a system and make a million dollar investment. And, and that's, that's, that was the sales process. Um, so sometimes we have skills we don't even realize we have. Sure. And, and honestly, the whole recruiting process and, and hiring and interviewing, that's really a sales process as well, because nowadays, because the job market's so competitive, you really have to sell these people to get them to, to join your organization. Yeah, I, I, I'm starting a team at IBM right now. We're, we're bringing HR backgrounds into sales. And, oh, interesting. Uh, and somebody, somebody told me that that's going to fail. And, uh, and I hear that a lot, you know, from external folks that uh, have a pure sales background uh, because they said the ramp time will be too high and the HR folks don't know how to ask for the deal and all of these things, right? And what they're missing is, is that we sell to HR. And so, you know, the understanding the buyer's problems, right? And, and, and really being clear about who you can help and who you can't help based on their strategy, an HR person has the ability to uh, uncover that faster than any sales professional. And so um, it's, it's an interesting uh, concept. And what I, what I also said back to some of those folks is, I know you think selling software is hard, but try convincing someone to move their family and their children out of the school they love <laughs> to a city to take a job that they're uncertain about. If you think selling software is hard, go do that. Yeah. And then You'll find you'll find a, a, a visceral emotional uh, thing that you have to overcome. Um, changing out your CRM is not as emotional. Yeah, there's emotion involved, but changing your kid's school and going from a private school to no private school where they're learning Spanish and now they're not learning Spanish that is a big deal. And if and and if you can drive that kind of change, um, you'll find that sales is actually a, a, an easier thing, not a harder thing. Definitely. And sales, it's something that's changing than from like the madman days, like things that we, you look at sales in the past where sales is most more focused on serving the people. People really want to know how is this going to impact for, for you business to business, like an organization, if you're a consumer, how is this going to make my life better? And because HR people are focused on that type of sales as you're selling, where it's like they're really focused on connecting with people because they have to connect with the people that they're working with. They should, in a way, be better salesmen than some of these people who have sales training, maybe from an educational standpoint. Yeah, yeah it, you know, it's, it's TBD, and, and uh, there's not enough data points to have a conclusion yet, but I'm trying to create more data to, to have that conclusion. Um, and, you know, my own career path is, is, is that career path, so I've lived it myself, but I'm only one data point. So um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. But, but to your point... The, you know, the idea that a salesperson that's never worked in HR can develop a relationship faster with an HR professional than someone with an HR background, that's a fallacy that only salespeople believe. Yeah. Uh, 
And, and they'll show you and tell you that they've sold all this stuff for all these years and they've even sold to HR. And I'll tell them that that organization made a decision to buy something and they happen to be in the mix and somebody had to win, right? So if, if, I'm, if I'm an HR professional, which I was, and I'm going to buy a new applicant tracking system and I'm choosing between Taleo and Conexa and uh, 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 let's call it Workday and Success Factors, the usual suspects, and all of them bring a salesperson then you have this, um, I forget the term, uh, uh, you, you have this um, uh, belief that a salesperson won, when in fact, uh, if you ask the buyer and you interview them, the salesperson was in their way. Yeah. And what they really wanted to get to the knowledge expert to get the questions answered that mattered the most. And so the salesperson that won walks away thinking they won. But what they missed is they won in spite of themselves rather than because of themselves. The decision was already made. The decision it was it had nothing to do with them. Yes. Um, the decision was made by the knowledge expert on their side and the buying organization's, um, you know, you know, buying process. And so, um, I, I was at uh, I was at a conference last week, and I and I went around and I asked two questions. I did a I like to do random surveys at conferences. It's a good icebreaker. That's smart. Um, so, you know, it's a way to get to know a lot of people and find some folks that are working on the same problems as you. So I asked two questions. First question was, what are the last three pieces of software you bought for your sales and marketing team? Now, that's an obvious one benefit for me because I'm, I'm working on the same problem at IBM. So I want, I want to know what other people are buying. Second question I asked them is, how did, uh, how did that relationship start? Did the vendor call you? Did you call the vendor? Or did someone else tell you you should uh, explore that vendor? And uh, and this is this is not a huge sample size, but less than five percent of all of the relationships that I talked to uh, were started by the vendor calling them. So, yeah, I found that pretty interesting. That is interesting. I read that in this book recently too. There, they did a larger study on it, and a majority of buyers they already make their decision by the time they get on a call or they see the demo or anything like that. They've done their research. They've done a level of due diligence and the decision in their heart has already been pretty much made. Like it could get determined and swayed one way or another once they reach that call or they reach that demo. But for the most part, they've already made the decision if they're going to, to purchase this software or not. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, it's also a risk for the company. So, um, you know, I think that number is at about 68 to 69% of buyers. They know what they want. They think they know what they want and they're on a race to price and functions. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's got to be a rise of a trusted broker. There's 7,100 marketing and sales technologies, just marketing and sales. There's 7,100. And I don't know anyone that knows 50. So, if your credit, if your uh, career um, is on the line, and your organizational your organization's success is on the line, based on the technology choices you make, then you've got to find a way to get good at buying technology. Definitely. And and there's no way to evaluate seventy one hundred. There's no way to really even evaluate a hundred. So how are you going to get your shortlist? And if your shortlist is based on everyone else's shortlist, do those organizations have your problems. I use a healthcare example all the time. Do you think that Cardinal Health has the same challenges 
as a local regional hospital network with two locations. Can't be. It just can't be. Cardinal Health has a massively popular brand, a good brand, an attractive brand. The local hospital is only known by the people that live there. So their ability to recruit talent nationwide is almost zero, whereas Cardinal Health is very strong. So I bet you Cardinal Health is inundated with applicants more than they can even possibly review or talk to. And I bet you the local regional hospital doesn't get enough applicants to even run a recruiting process and has to go find a way to hunt, you know? So um, what I hear a lot from healthcare companies is show me a healthcare company like me. And I, and I just say, but is that even reflective of your needs? And so if you, if you draw this simple box, right, if you draw this simple plus sign and you ask yourself, how many people did we attract from an inbound recruiting, um, call it a process, meaning someone actually came to you, they applied online, they joined your talent community, something like that, versus outbound. So that's the top two boxes, inbound versus outbound for a job we're recruiting for. And how many people did we recruit for a job that wasn't even open? Again, inbound and outbound. And when you put that matrix together, and it's real simple, it's a two-question survey to, to your previous hires, that is a better reflection of who you are. And if you go look for organizations like you in that frame and understand what they did to be successful, you'll have way more success than if you ask for someone that's in your vertical. Because people in your vertical don't have the same challenges as you. Definitely. And so you bring up the strong, trusted broker community. How do you suggest we get to the point where we really excel with that? Well, I'm already seeing, I'm already seeing some consultants that have caught on to this. And um, the consultant that says, I'm neutral, I don't have a point of view, I'm going to guide you, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're, those businesses are going to fail. Um, because at that point, you become a project manager. And, you know, I, I, I don't see organizations struggling with the true evaluation of a shortlist. They can go from five to one. What they can't do is go from 7,100 to five. And, and that's where the consultants are going to have to start forming opinions. They can't sit on the sideline and charge hundreds of thousands of dollars to just project manage a buying process. Only, only the least capable organizations need those services. I mean the least. And there's a lot of smart people out there that, that can make a choice. They just don't have the time to get the right shortlist. And so I've already told you about some of the fallacies of how they get their own shortlist so these, so some of these consultants I'm seeing out there that are are really leaders in what they do, uh, they're forming partnerships with technology. They're bringing technology to methodology. It's it's methodology that you know that leads to transformation, not technology. Technology can lead to methodology, right? So if I've got a database that has everyone in the world already in it, and I nicknamed it LinkedIn. Uh, and we look at the past, 92% of Fortune 1,000 companies bought it. What percentage of those companies bought any other CRM? It's cats and dogs and little teeny tiny slivers of market share because the people were already in it. So that's an extreme example. Uh, everyone figured that out on their own. Rocket yeah. scientists to know they had all the people in there because you had your own profile in there. So what are those examples 
in other areas of either sales and marketing or forget sales and marketing, HR, supply chain, anything, consultants find out faster than individual organizations which technologies drive a new methodology. And going back to that LinkedIn example, if you got everyone already there, then you can create an outbound methodology. If nobody's there in your CRM, you're going to really struggle. Sure. And, and you might give up developing outbound recruiting strategies, which by and large have led to the most success. Um, look at Google, look at Facebook, look at Amazon. All of them have over 2,000 recruiting professionals. And that's actually more than we have. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that their solution to the problem is th to throw bodies at it. How, now, they can afford to do that because they're in oligopoly or almost monopolistic industries. I mean, when you think that Google, Google has 89% of search or something like that, yeah. that's crazy. That's, that's a monopoly, but it's, there's 11% keeping, keeping them honest, so to speak. So they don't, you know, it's the courts are not saying it's a monopoly, but 89% is a lot. That creates a margin capability to invest like that. Most organizations don't have that luxury, right? But the, the answer to the problem is, and, and, and most of, of, of my colleagues would say that those brands have, they, they, they would put our brand in the mix. They would put Microsoft in the mix. They would put uh, maybe Intel and a few others in that mix that they have great brands that people want to work for. But if you ask them, they hire almost nobody that applies. So all this work around generating inbound, 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 they hire almost nobody that applies to them. And I bet you most organizations would kill just to have their inbound flow Definitely. and access to that talent. And so this, weird, this, this amazing phenomenon keeps happening is we keep rebuilding websites and we keep doing employment branding projects and, you know, we put a new scan and we have a new EVP and we say, life's great here. And it doesn't change the fundamental problem um, that the better people need a tap on the shoulder. They need someone to reach out to them. And so if that's how they're winning, then, you know, if you get busy trying to replicate what they're doing, which we've done, by the way, at IBM, the last, the last couple of years, we've raised um, uh, source contribution uh, from outbound from in, in our agile teams, right? So we have a, an agile recruiting methodology. We've raised um, outbound sourcing contribution from, uh, I think, something less than 2% to 26%. And that transformed our organization, transformed it. And all the metrics, all the KPIs, everything completely different than before. You can't sit around and wait. So um, I hope that answered your question. I got a little bit on a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely did. And it's, fa it's fascinating because I think so many people are thinking CRM and these different technologies and, and increasing spending on, on these technologies when in reality, people is really where the focus should be placed. Yeah, yeah. I see now that I've been in sales, after being in talent acquisition, uh, you know, and, I, and I've been involved in technology decisions in both of those uh, arenas. And I mean, an, uh, Salesforce CRM is the exact same thing as an ATS. Recruiting CRM is actually a bolt-on to what we think of as CRM in sales. So there's a little bit of a mismatch there on terminology. Everything lives in Salesforce and everything integrates around Salesforce to solve these little different problems or HubSpot, 
or sugar CRM, let's not give Salesforce all the love. And in the African tracking world, you build talent communities for the people that came to your site but didn't apply. You build a CRM for someone you may have had a conversation with or a more advanced CRM in today's day and age comes with the people already in it. So it's like, all right, I want to recruit a senior sales leader in um, you know, New York City. Let's look at all the senior sales leaders that live in New York City. And five years ago, you couldn't do that. You have to go figure out where they are. Uh, and LinkedIn Recruiter was your only option. Yeah. So, um, so the parallels are, are, are identical. Um, and in all of the examples of CRM, well, I shouldn't say all, in, in many of the examples of CRM that I've seen, there was a great pitch, there was a lot of hope, and the recruiters never had time to do anything in it. They got a big empty box, and it had nobody in it, and they, 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 every time they thought to go to that place, they knew there wasn't anybody there. And so the adoption's really low, the churn's really high, and maybe you get a new CRM, and, and the same problem comes right back all over again. So there's a reason why in the sales world, Zoom Info and Discover Org and, and, and Lead IQ and all these data providers, Seamless.ai, my buddy Brandon over there, um, continue to, to, to pop up and, and compete with each other and drive value is because you got to know who to talk to. Um, and it's such a simple problem that gets ignored too often. Uh, and I still see teams building um, versions of uh, building a 2010 strategy, assuming that there's, there's no way to get people, there's no way to buy a solution that already has people with it. Um, so, um, yeah. So I think that it's going to be really helpful if we kind of go more into your background with, with your work, because you, as you said, you were in sales, you're in recruitment, you've done kind of a diverse range of things, working with big companies, working with startups. So I think we might get some more insights by going into that. And I saw that you first started working at Cummins and you went from software procurement into uh, recruitment and you worked in a bunch of different areas like China, Singapore, and Australia. What did you really pick up from working at Cummins and what did you learn that, that's impacted how, in your work now? Well, I tell you, I, I, I didn't have as good of an appreciation for how, how great Cummins HR is until I left. It really is. It's something they've 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 had the same leader since 1999. Wow! And, and she uh, she she just she created a world class organization. Oracle will tell you it's one of the best deployments of Oracle human capital in their entire portfolio. It's one of the only companies that has one instance in literally every 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 moving body in that organization is is tied to Oracle with a couple of very small exceptions. Um, a lot of other organizations have chopped that up into different instances or, or even different providers and, and everything flows from that. Um, I, I, I always had a clear picture of where I was at in the organization, how to get to the next level, what, you know, I, I could answer my own questions about how that changes my comp and my benefits. And, and, you know, I, I in working with some other organizations, I realized not everyone's there. Um, there's a lot of employees. I got a lot of friends asking me, you know, just for, just for a sanity check on, uh, uh, you know, an internal move. And I ask them, I'm like, well, what do you think about the comp? Oh, I don't even know about the comp. And I'm thinking, how do you not know about the comp? Like, how do you not, how do you not understand the comp's philosophy, the strategy, the, the structure? And, um, and that's just one piece of HR compensation. There's many others. Um, the, 
I, I remember our, our chief strategy officer, a guy named Thad, he said um, the best education he ever got was working in procurement. And he said, through procurement, you can see how business is conducted. Uh, it was a really simple statement. And, and as a 25-year-old, I didn't really put a lot of um, emphasis on it. My first job was actually to look up software prices on the internet and put them in a spreadsheet and see if we were getting a worse deal. That was my I came out of MBA school with like spreadsheet modeling and all this Excel skills. And literally my first, my first task was just go see if we're just paying too much for stuff. And, and so I did it and went through the process. And by the end of that first run, I had worked 85 enterprise software deals as an analyst. I only ran a couple myself and uh, cause you know, I was super junior I was brand new and um, you know, reflecting back on that, now that I'm in sales, 85 enterprise deals is the body of work in true enterprise selling is the body of work of a 10 year career. And I will tell you that the sales professional only sees 20% of the process. They think they see 80. They only see 20. They also get filtered feedback. Then they think they know why they won or lost. And actually they don't. And I know that with certainty because I've been on the other side and I've seen what happens when the sales rep walks out of the room and then, then the business has a real conversation about what, what they think they saw. Um, we used to make fun of the, you know, it's it, it, make fun of is a little bit of a strong uh, phrase there. But we, we used to poke fun at the rep that would come in and ask the, we called it the 40 questions of death. <laughs> By question number five, you realize you're going to, it's, it, they, they think they're following this discovery framework. And what they're doing is admitting out loud in front of the whole room that they actually don't know anything. Then they leave the room and we say, oh boy, in about a week, here comes the slide deck that says they uniquely solve all of our challenges. And here it comes right in the inbox as predicted. We uniquely solve your business challenges. Slide one. First thing you said, and we're going to fill 3,000 jobs next year. Oh, we have another customer that filled 2,800 last year. So what? <laughs> like, and they think, wow, isn't that a great fit? Um, and, on, and on the deck goes painting this picture and, and zero thought leadership, not challenging your assumptions, not telling you what you're screwing up, just totally reactive to what, you, what they thought you said you need. Filtered, right? Yeah. Only so much information you can acquire in an hour meeting. And, and so extend that through the process. Then at the end, you say, hey, we went with uh, IBM. And they're like, oh, wow, I'm surprised to hear that. Why is that? Well, we just felt like, you know, they were a better fit for our overall needs. And, um, you know, they integrate to our current stack. And, and, um, and you know, they go back uh, and put in their CRM, close lost, and they lost because we didn't integrate. And actually, that had nothing to do with it. It was that we didn't feel like we could learn from them. We didn't feel like they had a strong point of view. We had no idea where they were taking the company. Um, and we did not feel like working every day with that team was going to make us better and smarter. Um, a lot of organizations buy based on their belief that working with you is going to make them better, smarter, faster, more amazing. And it's people. It's not just the software. It's just as much the people. Um, so I think that gets lost in, in today's B2B conversations. But that, that was just an unfair advantage I didn't even realize. And, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs talks about, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Yep. 
that procurement experience, seeing 85 deals and just listening and listening to leaders react um, and, and hearing the same reaction from three or four or five different leaders that left these really strong impressions about what actually matters in a B2B buying process. And it's so not a lot of the things we think. And if you're, you know, if you're watching this and you want to, yeah, that, that's sort of a, that's a kind of an aggressive generalization. Uh, go read the challenger customer, not the challenger sale. The second book, the challenger customer, I can tell you from being on all sides of the problem, the business owner of the process when I worked in talent acquisition, which we'll come to next, the procurement uh, analyst that's, you know, running a good process of vendor selection, and then the seller. I've been in all of those roles, and the challenger customer is the best body of work that accurately depicts what's going on. Uh, and, uh, you know, coming full circle here to the 7,100 sales and marketing technologies, the hardest thing right now is buying something. It's not selling something. It's actually buying something. I've, I've been a buyer now for the last almost year uh, working on what we're doing in, in Watson Talent. We're the, we're the, um, we're the fastest growing uh, SaaS division in, in terms of sales productivity at IBM. And so we're, we're looking at how do, we, how do we keep accelerating that growth. And being a buyer is so hard right now. It is so hard. Um, and so that book really paints the picture that most of the time when you lose, you lose because the buyer couldn't figure out how to buy anything rather than you lost to a, another competitor that has better features than you do. So why is it harder than to be the buyer rather than the seller? Is it too many options? Is it the risk that's involved? Is it just kind of having to deal with all the different obstacles of different dealing with different departments, making sure it's all right with your financing, then getting approval from decision makers? What's the hardest parts of the buyer process? Great question. The larger the company, the more you have centralized functions that have an initiative versus your line of business that has its own goals. And sometimes the methodology and technologies used to achieve those goals are in conflict. The centralized organization wants everyone to use, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it up. They want everyone to use HubSpot, you know, across the board or Salesforce. And in your particular division, you've identified three or four of these 7,100, think about it, these 7,100 choices, you've identified three or four that's really gonna move the needle for you. But your corporate organization wants to standardize on one. So we got into this mindset of standardization. And it affects training, and it affects enablement, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. But I think we borrowed a little bit too much from IT in some cases. Standardization is the, is the death of innovation. Definitely. And, and so that's the balance. And I think we're going to see this massive shift from standardizing uh, on, on user experiences and applications to it, SaaS enables uh, people to have choices. Exactly. We can just get security and integration right. So the SaaS community, and MuleSoft is a good example of this. MuleSoft solved a very real problem. Um, they help you integrate to all kinds of stuff. And we have solutions at IBM, you know, that compete with that. Um, but Salesforce's acquisition of them makes perfect sense. Customers need integration more than ever because the SaaS solutions are bringing capabilities that the others can't possibly develop fast enough. And so if we get integration and security right, 
then at the end user level, you could let them pick whatever they want in some cases, in, in, in some pockets of business. So, so the other thing that happened was after the recession, C-Levels and their staff, they were more resistant to making unilateral decisions than ever before. Now they, they really want to drive consensus decision-making because then they don't have to live with the outcome. They're still the leader no matter which way it goes. The whole team decided that we were going with Workday. And then we put all of our data there and then we look at it and we run a report and our business is the same. Uh-oh, it's prettier, right? So you see I'm a little jaded on that. Um, that's not an IBM opinion, that's a Ewing opinion. Uh, okay, all my data's there, now it's in the cloud, now what? I, I pay people the same, I recruit people the same, I, hmm. You know, but but now that leader doesn't have to live with that decision on their own because they push it down. By pushing it down, the stakeholders went wider. So now we have to get more people on board than ever before. And so the sales rep thinks they're selling to the buyer or the key persona or whatever it is. But in reality, you're enabling that person to go do the real selling. The real selling happens inside, not outside. Um, and you know, the reason that, uh, the reason people are going around sales reps and, 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 and doing digital research is one, because it's more efficient. No, I don't have 30 minutes on my calendar to give you to talk about your slide deck. I don't, but in 30 minutes I could, I could review five different vendors on G2 crowd. Yep. But the danger there is now we're buying everyone, everyone else's decision. It's like hiring from Harvard because we assume Harvard did a good screening process. But look what just happened with the emissions scandal, right? It's like, <laughs> do you want to, you know, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a visceral topic right now. So uh, there's no easy answer, but the answer to your question is because the real selling happens internally and the number of stakeholders are increasing, not decreasing. Okay. And so I, you brought up the amount of experience you got initially with Cummins, and then you also you brought up the admissions scandal recently, and you talked about your MBA. So you got your MBA at Purdue, and I'm curious, from your perspective, because there's a lot of people it's kind of divided where people think it's really valuable, and then other people think it's not so valuable in the experience and the knowledge that you could like gain from books and just investing time into knowledge is more valuable than the investment in an MBA. Uh, what do you think about that? And do you think it was a good investment? Do you think it was worthwhile? Or do you think you ended up getting more out of your experience early on? So it's situational. And for me, it was a no brainer. Uh, because Cummins never would have hired me if, if I wasn't on campus at Purdue. There's a little magical thing that still happens. And that magical thing is, is that companies go to MBA schools, and they recruit the full-time day students. They hardly ever recruit the night students. So there's a really big difference between immersing in the day program and going full-time versus doing it at night. When you do it at night, your company is usually paying for it or subsidizing it. You already have a job. And it's really just about knowledge. And that knowledge is still valuable. And it's still valuable to have people to bounce things off of and to be able to fail and learn in a protected environment away from your organization. So that's still, that's still valuable. But for me, there's no way I would have ever landed at Cummins had I not been in the full-time Purdue day program. Uh, Cummins has been hiring from Purdue for 30 years uh, in the MBA program. A lot longer than that for the engineering program. So 
So to me, that's, that's the most valuable thing for those full-time day, day, full-time sort of day um, programs is that the companies come to you. All you have to do is be half awake and pay attention and, and work with your career center. And, you know, GE is going to come and, you know, here comes, you know, um, PricewaterhouseCooper and Deloitte and IBM and, and, and Amazon. And, you know, it's all right there. I mean, where can you get that much attention? In any other job seeker channel, there is none. There's no way to get that much attention in a concise period of time. Um, some people shoot for the moon and want to go to the best program. And I'll tell you that that's a risky strategy, and here's why. If you're the 30th percentile of, uh, of uh, Yale, then the companies want everyone else. So there's a, there's a little bit of a risk there. Like, how good of a school do you want to get into? Yes, it will challenge you. But if you think about this strategically, you're trying to get hired and trying to get a better job than you had before. I mean, that's the, that's the short-term outcome. The long-term view is the network, right? So some of the schools do a way better job of, of maintaining their, their alumni than others. And, uh, you know, so if, if I'm this age right now, right, and I don't have an MBA, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going right now because the loss of income going back, the cost of the school and what the job I'm going to get coming out of the day program versus the job I already have, I'm upside down in almost all cases. So right now it doesn't make any sense for me. When I graduated undergrad, the only, the only, I, I had two job offers one of them was with Walmart Information Systems to be a VB.net developer, and I thought the whole world was going to India. You know, <laughs> 22 years old, I thought a VB.net developer is a total dead end. Why would I ever go into software development? I was an MIS major. Boy, was I wrong about that. <laughs> um, and so there's this massive shift, and so I, I, I didn't go, and I didn't want to live in Arkansas. And that really it was I didn't want to – I grew up in Oklahoma, and I moved to Mississippi. Why would I want to live in Arkansas? Yeah. I've already driven through that place so many times. I, I got it. I got, I got all there is to know about Arkansas, you know, uh, through living on neighboring sides. So I, was, I wanted a new culture. And, you know, I took the GMAT on a whim to go to grad school at Ole Miss. And, uh, and, and I was actually working on flipping houses uh, for profit with uh, my alumni advisor that, that I met through my fraternity. It was, that was the master plan. And then Purdue came calling at the last minute. Um, and uh, I just packed my bags and went. I thought it was in Pennsylvania. Called my mom. And I said, uh, <laughs> uh, I said, I'm going to Purdue. And she's like, oh, really? I was like, she goes, where's that? I said, Pennsylvania. And I, <laughs> I, accepted, I accepted my slot before I even knew where it was. It turns out it's in Indiana. Um, so um, that's how I made the decision. But that was, that, you know, my, I'll tell you, my job offer coming out of Purdue was 2x my job offer going to Walmart in two years. I 2x my salary in two years by going to MBA school. You can't do that at this age, right? I'm in a very different part. Uh, and there were people, there were plenty of students my age, you know, um, now, when, and I'm 36, uh, in case you're wondering. I call myself the grandpa of the millennials. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so there were plenty of folks, right, that um, – got great jobs. And by the way, they were the first ones everybody wanted to recruit. Why? Because they had experience. So if I, if I were, 
you know, to go acquire knowledge right now, I mean, IBM's learning is phenomenal, right? The way we have, you know, provided a Netflix-like experience on key topics like data science and, and um, machine learning. And I mean, you can just learn about anything you want, regardless of your job uh, title. That's awesome. But to go deeper, um, if I'm looking to acquire knowledge right now, I'm looking at things like Hack Reactor and General Assembly. You know, they're, they're, they're short micro learnings. They're deep and focused on a topic. They're taught by an expert. Um, they're way cheaper than school. And they're not focused on some kind of test or certification. They're focused on giving you skills that matter. And, and that's what really matters, right? The grade system doesn't cater to every learning style. You know, we, we know that too. So there's, there's other things you can poke holes in for the, for the MBA. But it's ultimately the opportunity and you should ultimately really be pursuing it if you have the time to be going during the day and take the two years and I'll be doing it part-time while you're having a job because that's where you're going to be getting the recruitment opportunities. If you do it part-time, you're in it for the knowledge. And if you're in it for the knowledge, I think the General Assembly model is better. If you're doing it to get a better job, then the day program serves that need better because of the recruiting realities. So yeah, you said, you said it really well. Okay, awesome. And then one thing that I saw you gained when you were at Cummins that I think is just as valuable as an MBA, if not more valuable, probably more valuable, was a Six Sigma black belt. So could you briefly explain what the Six Sigma, Sigma, or Six Sigma system is and then also, what the, the best aspects, the most important aspects of your black belt are? You might be the only one that's ever read my whole background. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so coming out of procurement, um, eventually, as a 25-year-old, I got bored with that job. And uh, the ticket out of my group, if you will, um, was uh, if you become a Six Sigma black belt, then... Uh, when you're done with that role, you become a free agent, and it's one of the uh, one of the most highly sought after skill sets internally. Now Cummins has a different approach, and it's built on the old GE model from the '90s. Jack Welch. A black belt is a full time job. A black belt is like an MBA. It's a two year assignment, and all you work on is Six Sigma projects. Um, Sigma represents standard deviation. And so standard deviation is, is how far something is from the norm. So what you're doing is you're, you're using a robust methodology and some mathematical tools and modeling software to fix processes, find out what's wrong with them, put control plans in place to make them better so they don't go revert back to the mean, right? We call it reverting back to the norm. Um, and wildly, wildly successful at Cummins uh, our old chairman from the late 90s and uh, uh, early 2000s uh, said that uh, I, I think uh, data point was either $1 billion or $2 billion impact total from Six Sigma over 10, 15 years. That saved the company. Um, and it allowed the company to invest and really diversify. Cummins was an engine company in the 90s. It was even called Cummins Diesel Engine Company. It is so far from that today five or even six lines of business and probably more than that if you look on a deeper underneath. Um, so Six Sigma is, is, is now used across the, all the functions, not just in the manufacturing environments. It really was born out of there. You know, the way that Toyota manufactures cars, Lean, Kaizen, whatever you want to call it, they're all, they're all close cousins of each other. It's like Agile. There's Scrum, 
and there's other sub methodologies to agile. So it's really just being disciplined about inputs and outputs and measurement systems. But the key is it is a full-time role, not a certification because you happen to save a million dollars. Most organizations treat Six Sigma like a badge and Cummins treats it like an MBA. Very, very different. Um, and a lot of the, um, uh, uh, one of the hottest backgrounds you can have in external recruiting market is a Cummins master black belt. If you're a master black belt, then you can teach uh, Six Sigma rather than just execute. And uh, those folks command a premium uh, in the market because of that skill set. That's interesting. So what do you think is more valuable, the, the Six Sigma black belt or the MBA? Oof. Well, the MBA got me there. <laughs> You know, the Six Sigma was something I got once I was already there. So for, for my career path, the MBA was more valuable. Uh, in terms of what I do at work every day, um, maybe Six Sigma is more valuable. Okay. Uh, it's tough. It's, it's a really tough, it's tough to have a black and white answer to that question. Uh, there's a lot of nuance there, but that's, that's the way I would answer it from, for myself. Okay. And so then once you're done with Cummins, you worked in the startups with Smartly or uh, Smart Recruiters and then Findly. And then now you're with IBM working with Watson, helping HR and IT leaders. Could you exactly explain what you're doing with HR and IT leaders with IBM Watson? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've transformed as an HR organization over the last uh, three or four years um, to the tune of over $100 million saving every single year. Um, so business outcomes are there, user experiences are up, NPS scores are up. And so what Watson is doing is basically executing jobs that, uh, people are, um, not good at, don't like to do and happen often. That's where we started. That's the safest place to start in adopting AI happens all the time. Humans hate it and they're not good at it. Uh, there was an old saying, uh, people are bad at boring jobs. Boring is subjective to the individual. You might love a job that I hate. You're going to be good at it. I'm probably not going to be that good at it. Now, some people are good at everything and there's, you know, there's, there's polymaths out there. But, you know, when you look at a job seeker um, and you think about an organization the size of us, how many jobs do we have posted at any given time? It's always in the thousands. E&Y, always in the thousands, right? And other organizations. Um, and even when it's in the hundreds, you get to the point as a job seeker where you can't read them all. So how do you shop? You shop on job title. How reflective of, of, how reflective of the job is job title? Not that much. And, and so because we don't have this standardization and because things mean different things to different organizations, I'll, I'll give you a prime example. Account executive. We all think we know what that means. Some companies, it means you're going to spend all day hunting for new clients and you better not get caught talking to an existing client because that's account management. In some organizations, you do both. You have a book of business, you are an account manager for those customers, and you hunt net new. And for some organizations, this is a little more rare, an account executive is an account executive. They only work on installed accounts. So that title can be wildly different and you have to read the job description to find out what it is. So that's a process that humans are bad at because it's really boring and you can't, you don't have time to read them all. So we taught Watson how to read them all. 
So Watson reads them all and uses a taxonomy of, a, uh, you know, basically it's a proprietary uh, data set uh, to match to. So the job seeker now gets a stack ranked version of the whole career site by their fit based on just a simple resume upload. And then you go into the recruiter experience. We have a product called, uh, I just learned recently that one of our um, highest rated uh, portions of our recruiter experience is Watson News. And I was, I was surprised by that. So Watson News is basically, think of Watson as watching the whole internet. Okay. And, 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 and consuming everything that's happening. And so if you want to know what's going on with Toyota, we have a perspective on that. Watson has a perspective on that. We've got every article that ever mentioned Toyota collected and analyzed. Sentiment analysis. Was it positive or negative? Right? And we serve that up to the recruiters um, because we already had that product in another part of our business. They love it because now they're able to use that information in recruiting conversations. We also have Glassdoor natively integrated, so you have all that information. We love that partnership with Glassdoor. So all that information is side-by-side along with Twitter. When I first came in, I didn't think that was the best part of the product. I thought it was more of the stack ranking of every applicant in the pool. But actually, I'm starting to learn that recruiters are saving a lot of time and really value that information. It's making their conversations easier. Uh, Then you go to the employee experience. And this is my favorite uh, product by far. Um, When I was at Cummins, um, your network was your direct correlation to your next job. And, you know, if you played in the company basketball league, which I got advised to do, (laughs) you're bound to meet a vice president. If you play in the golf league, which I was advised to do, you're bound to meet, you know, another business leader. And the best thing I ever did was, was get involved in college recruiting. College recruiting changed my career because going back every, every college at Cummins had a vice president as a sponsor. So just being involved in campus recruiting gets you exposed to leadership and exposure is everything, whether it's in sales or your own career. So, um, oh, I just, I just lost my train of thought there. Uh, help, help me real quick. Um, I was talking about, um, You're oh, talking-, about, talking about career coach. And so now I'm able to see all the jobs internally at IBM that I'm a good fit for and even given a, rating on how good of a fit based on my skills and abilities and what I've done and the trainings I've taken, the learning, my resume coming in, uh, the jobs I've had. And it's not overwhelming anymore. And what it's done is it's broken down the barriers to a different career path. It's used technology to serve up to me all the things I should be considering. And it gives me jobs that I normally wouldn't have considered for myself because Watson doesn't understand career paths like we do. Watson understands how to leverage the skills you have. And, and so if you continuously build new skills through our learning and our, our other uh, immersive programs, it starts to continue to add to your profile and Watson sees you as a fit for different things. It's awesome. That's my favorite, favorite part of the, the portfolio. Um, and we're just releasing um, next the ability to take an assessment test. Now I can take an assessment test and add my proficiency to my skills library automatically. And then Watson picks it up and considers me for even different things. Uh, We also have Watson consuming skills information from job postings across the web. 
so that we always know what the relevant skills are for a job and how they change. And finally, um, organizations need data to use AI. If you don't have good data about what a job is, there's nothing to match. A lot of startups will tell you a different story. That's because they have to. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have a product to sell, right? So um, we call it talent frameworks. It's the, it's the work of Conexa and, and organizations before that. Through that acquisition, uh, hundreds of IO psychologists, thousands of job profiles, decades of studying. Um, and, uh, and one more, I'll, I'll throw you a bonus. Um, we, uh, we were hired by the UK Ministry of Defense because um, they had a really, really tough problem uh, creating new cybersecurity professionals within their um, organization. It was costing them, uh, I believe it was something like half a million pounds. Um, so they reached out to IBM Consulting to see if we could help them solve that problem. We studied those professionals for over two years, literally looking over their shoulder, right? Uh, the kind of, the kind of information and, and study that we have the scale to be able to do. And now we're able to predict um, cybersecurity talent success uh, at a rate beyond any recruiter's capability and any recruiting organization's ability to do it on their own. Um, so that is a very specific uh, assessment test created by some IOs um, that solves a, a rapidly evolving business problem, which is nobody has enough cybersecurity talent. And what was interesting to me was a lot of the cybersecurity talent they're finding is inside of their own walls, but they never considered them because of what their resume says, that they've been this, this, and this. You can't be in cybersecurity. Look at you. You're, you're, you're over here. You've, you've had this kind of career. So we've broken down that wall. Um, so that's really exciting. Uh, there's a few more pieces, but that's, that's the bigger pieces that we call Watson talent that really sits across all talent management. That's really awesome because it not only strengthens recruiting, but it strengthens opportunity for others for job pursuits and, and promotions and stuff like that. Because as you said, the, the networking, that's such a, a important part of, of finding new job opportunities. And then also there's the nepotism and other things like that that are taken into account. And that's all eliminated with what you're doing with Watson. Sure. Well, let's not say all eliminated, it's managed, um, you know, certainly managed and it gives the HR leadership a data set they've never had before. Because if you, if you're investigating a rack or if you suddenly realize that you're struggling to recruit marketing talent, you can at a click analyze what your flow looks like in terms of quality, not just how many, but quality. Um, you can also analyze, um, you know, what's the quality of the, the talent that we're outbound sourcing, right? So remember, we talked about how important outbound sourcing is. It's only, it's only, it's only um, effective if you recruit great talent. If you recruit average talent, it's just like your inbound flow. So, um, so that, that ability to see that at that top level um, creates all kinds of outcomes. Uh, you could look at maybe you have four lines of business. One line of business is all over top talent. They just pounce on it. They, they make it happen in three days. Another line of business treats a great match the same as they treat a poor match, and everyone takes two weeks to schedule interviews. They, just, it's like a, they view it like a factory. Well, guess what? The top talent doesn't wait around. They go somewhere else. So that factory that 
process, that standardization that we do it all the same way is killing them. Now, this, now leaders can have data to go influence that, whereas before, they, they're blind to it. So, Definitely. So with IBM Watson and other different forms of AI automation and robotics, how do you think the job industry is going to be affected over the next, say, 20 or 30 years? A lot of things are negative, but to be honest with you, the things you've brought up with Watson, it sounds like there's a lot of positive aspects of it as well. Yeah, there are. Um, you know, certainly with, with all change, um, you know, when automobiles came out, the horse carriage folks were throwing a fit. Um, you know, when, uh, when airplanes came out, the train, the train owners hated it. Um, so we keep doing this to ourselves, and we keep creating new jobs. So there's a lot of jobs going away, but there's even more jobs uh, being created. And that's, that's, what, that's what some say. So there's always going to be those two sides of the argument. Um, I, what I see, you know, is that, and both from being exposed to IBM now as an employee, but even as an outsider, is that AI very rarely so far replaces a whole job. It replaces a part of a job. So as long as that continues to be the case, then, you know, it replaces parts of the job and then you evolve to a different job. So now we have roles in our talent acquisition function like talent scientist. We never had that job before. What does that even mean? Talent influencer. And I think we're on this path where recruiters become career coaches. And the technology does a great job of identification. Um, and then it's up to humans to have uh, a career coach conversation. And it's wildly different than all of this process and system updates and clicking buttons and moving people through flows and, you know, uh, very linear, right? I got a wreck, got a person, got interviewed, push, 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 close, close, close. Um, instead, it's, you know, we know that these skill sets are super, uh, oh, I, I tell you about a cool comment study. Uh, we, went to, we went to HRIS um, and HR Strategy and asked them, what is the most, uh, what, is the, what is the unfair advantage role that you could come into as a new employee? And they go, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what is the job title that leads to the most promotion, internal mobility, retention, all the kind of things that we think are great outcomes? Oh, and they, and they analyzed the data, service engineer. A service engineer was the best place to come into because when you come in as a service engineer, you get exposed to manufacturing, products, customers, marketing, literally the whole company, except for some of the internal corporate functions. Um, and that gave you a career path in all of those. And, we, and, and those people then move on to all of those different things and they understand how business is done and what customers care about. And there's no better role to come into than that. So it's those kinds of things that, that when we free up HR from the mundane process, then uh, we actually allow them to do more strategic work like that. And, okay. uh, and, and one, one more thing on, on talent acquisition is that, you know, with, with, with AI and uh, robotic process automation doing some of the process work, just like an HR person can become a salesperson, a business person can become a recruiter. And so if you're, if you're a leader uh, and you want to, you, if you think about what Google does and Amazon, Amazon has their leadership principles, right? And they call it raising the bar. 
and you and everyone gets interviewed on the same principles uh, and you have to be seen as better than half of the people in the department you're joining raising the bar that's the only way you raise the bar which is amazing that they pulled that off Google uh, I've had friends interview and I think this is pretty widely circulated you're gonna have between like six and ten interviews like nobody gets into Google on two interviews and the reason is not because of the not as much because of the inspection of the candidate what they're actually doing is calibrating their interviewers and they come up with a mathematical formula so if if, if you interview and I'm, and I'm on the business team at Google and I rate you as a 2.8, but the team collectively saw you as a 3.4 and you get hired and succeed, that's a knock against me. I had a blind spot. I couldn't see that you were good. And guess what? I can't move up the organization because selecting talent and managing talent is a key principle that you must master to move up the organization along with strategy and all that other stuff, right? So you can't advance if you can't interview well. And so if you think about the, the, uh, the shift that could happen, what, what I believe organizations are going to start um, uh, playing with is taking some of their high potentials that are stuck at the bottom of the organization because there's not room for them to move and moving them through recruiting and telling them, go to recruiting for an 18-month assignment and get really good at selection and work with tons of business leaders. It's gonna change your network, it's gonna change your skills, it's gonna get you ready to be uh, a manager because a big part of being a manager is selecting talent. And you've never done it. You're an individual contributor. Yeah, so if we make you a manager, all of a sudden you have to pick talent. But if we rotate you through recruiting, now we have better, better I'll say, now we have more business informed people on the front lines and what do our recruiters become? Experts, consultants, advisors, on the whole picture because they have more, they've seen more movies, so to speak, than these new business leaders coming in so they can, they can mentor them. When the business leader, when the up and comer, the high performer, let's call it individual contributor, comes through recruiting back into the business, they have a whole new toolkit. So Google's, Google has engineered that a slightly different way. They don't put the people into talent acquisition, but I think we'll start to see some of those rotations happen. That's really interesting. I think that kind of touches on what I'm about to ask is what can be done to rethink team-based learning models? Just how most, what's the most simple way we could be doing that? Well, I mean, I'm, I'll give you one example. It's the team that I'm, I'm, I'm working on uh, right now. And, you know, so um, we look at the customer journey to evaluating our software and uh, what we quickly realize is putting the customer in the center of our team gives us the customer's perspective. So we're, you know, we're in the process of, um, I've had an interview tomorrow, we're, we're looking for HR talent. So folks that have been in HR most of their career, if not all, in a variety of different talent management roles. So we go to the customer and say, we've got a person that can help identify if we're a fit for you very quickly. So you don't have to go through these rounds of, you know, um, uh, uh, sales meetings um, and then building around that person with a sales coach that's coached a lot of people through process and is excellent at that and you know a sales enablement person that can take a you know modern technology stack and build around all of these unique individuals on this team um, the the model has a self-learning self-coaching built in because we're functioning as a team shared commissions shared everything um, versus functioning as individuals 
in a silo. When I was a recruiter, I was by myself. I had my recs. It was just me. When, you know, I've been a sales professional and had my territory and my accounts and it was all me, you know, uh, managers and managers today have more direct reports than ever. So there's less coaching that can possibly happen. And not everyone's even skilled at coaching. So team, it's not just team learning. Uh, our recruiting organization, our talent acquisition team, went to an agile model. They work as a team. They fill jobs as a team. So they broke down the individual silos that they previously were in. So, I mean, it's a great, it's, it's, it, that question, it was like a fastball for me because, I mean, that's exactly what we're doing right now is, is taking the team approach into sales and seeing what happens. But the customer is at the center. Because if, we just, if it's just a bunch of salespeople teaching each other, we're teaching each other the same stuff everyone's already been taught. So the customer's there to challenge all of our thinking. Every message, uh, which organizations we prioritize to reach out to, all that stuff. And so most simply, you're kind of touching on it towards the end. What inspires you most to be building these agile sales? Uh, what inspires me the most is that... Um, I know a lot of HR professionals that are uh, at a dead end um, and they just keep rotating to the same job at a different organization, maybe a little bit bigger uh, and their learning is still there, but it, they're, 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 they're getting deeper on certain topics, but um, maybe their compensation, they're uh, just, you know, they're kind of ready for something new and what do you do, right, if you've been in HR for 20 years? And what I'm saying is, is those are the very people that should be in sales because they, the customer, the HR professionals, would rather buy from themselves. So, so this could be the start of a way to, um, to allow many more people to enter into sales that never previously considered it for themselves um, and haven't made the transition I love it because I literally get to talk to so many different organizations, interact with so many different and diverse people that when I was in HR, it was just my organization every day. Some people need more variety and crave more variety and they can't get it. If they go, if they, if they leave director of talent management at company X and go to director of talent management at company Y, they recreate the same problem. They feel great for six months and then they're like, it's the same job all over again. Right. Um, so if they move into sales, now they get to talk to the director of talent management at 50 different companies. And that can be for a lot of people, very fulfilling. So if we can enable that person to make that move, uh, at a different scale that's happening today, that's a huge impact on a lot of folks' lives and careers. Definitely. And I think it also, it's going to spark change too, because it's going to drive more sales. Cause I really think that sales is going to more towards as we said, it's, they're already researching. They really want to, they, they don't want answers to questions that you're going to be asking them. They just really want to interact with somebody, connect, make sure that their problems are going to be solved and then go forward from there. So I think it's also going to create a lot more opportunities for businesses as well. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So, uh, Ewing, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss and is there, where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, LinkedIn really. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I'm, I really, I'm, I'm forced to uh, be in tune with because that's where my customers are. So, uh, oftentimes we'll, you know, someone will reach out and ask about uh, something they saw or, um, you know, and, and, uh, it's just the place that I live, um, 
today. Uh, I mean, my email address is right on my LinkedIn profile, so it's, it's not a secret. First out, last name at IBM.com. Um, probably not giving out myself. <laughs> I Good idea. My, my SMS inbox is the, is, is the last, uh, it's the last safe haven for people that I actually know. Um, and, uh, I think Twitter is a, a tool for kids. Um, so I just, I agree I, with that <laughs> I don't get any value out of Twitter. I think it's just bloggers and consultants and, uh, and analysts people. It, they're just talking to each other. A lot of people have an account. I, you know, I only know, uh, I only know athletes and celebrities and consultants and bloggers that use it. So don't, don't send me a message there. Cause I probably won't see it for at least a month. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful that you came on and shared your story and shared so many interesting facts. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Look forward yeah. to seeing you when we cross paths again at the next show or whatever, uh, whatever it is. Definitely. We are grateful you took the time to listen to our conversation and hope it makes a positive impact in your life. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening or watching it. Check out other episodes, leave a review, and follow us on social media at More You Know Pod. Also, please don't forget about our sweepstakes. Retweet a clip with the hashtag The More You Know and New Podcast from our Twitter for a chance to win a signed copy of my upcoming book, The More You Know, coming this fall. Tag two friends in the comments on a clip on Instagram for a chance to win a brand new copy of Dean Graziosi's Millionaire Mindset or Ed Milet's Max Out. Like us or share a clip on Facebook for a chance to win a book I have read that highly inspired me, signed by me with an inspirational message. Again, thank you for listening as we propel with podcasting through the more you know. I'm just trying to make it all make sense. The more you know podcast.